0: Well, good morning. It is a blessing and a privilege to be with you this morning is something I've been looking forward to and praying about and trusting the Lord would allow us to come together this morning and hear his word proclaimed from Psalm 46. Uh, One thing we want to highlight and all of us pastors as we move from church to church this morning, we want to highlight is that our desire as a, a region of pillar churches is that our churches would know one another, would pray for one another, would encourage one another, because we are all a part of Christ's kingdom, and he has a good work for us to do here in Hampton Roads, and we can do that uh, better, we believe, as we pray for one another, know one another, serve one another, minister to one another, and we are praying that today, as we're kind of all swapping pulpits, would be a part of that. And then, of course, next Saturday, hopefully some of you have signed up for the conference that we're doing at Nansman River Baptist Church. It's going to be a really edifying time of learning about disciple-making. We have some godly men who are going to be bringing the truth of God's word to us. And so if you're able to make that, I do believe today is the last day to register for that. And we hope that you'd be able to come and be with us next Saturday at Nansman River Baptist Church. I do want to express particular appreciation to your pastor, Michael. Uh, And to your pastor, Ben, I consider both of them to be good friends, and they have encouraged me in in ministry, Uh, they've encouraged me in life, and I know that they love you deeply, and I'm just grateful for them, uh, and for the chance to be with you this morning. If you have your copy of God's Word, I'd ask you to turn with me to Psalm 46, which is going to be our passage for study this morning, Psalm 46. And if you have that, when you have that, please stand with me out of respect for God's Word, and I'm going to read that passage for us, Psalm 46, a Wonderful passage for our time. God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear, though the earth gives way, though the mountains be moved into the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and foam, though the mountains tremble at its swelling, Salah. There's a river whose streams make glad the city of God, the holy habitation of the Most High. God is in the midst of her. She shall not be moved. God will help her when morning dawns. The nations rage, the kingdoms totter. He utters his voice, the earth melts. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress, Salah. Come behold the works of the Lord, how he has brought desolations on the earth. He makes war cease to the ends of the earth. He breaks the bow and shatters the spear. He burns the chariots with fire. Be still. And know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. Salah. Let's pray. Oh Lord, what a blessing it is to know that we will, because we are in Christ, never know one moment of time where you will not be with us and where you will not be for us. And we praise you that through Christ, you have already won the great victory. It was won at the cross. You are now working out your victory in this world. And by your grace, we have a, a place in that victory. And God, we are asking as we gaze upon your glory this morning that you would be with us. We're asking that your spirit would fill us. We're asking that you would give insight to our, to our minds, enlighten our minds, that so we would understand your word. Lord, we're praying that you would, would break hardened hearts, Lord, that we would love you with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. We pray for the conviction of sin, that we would turn away from the sin that is sapping our spiritual strength. Oh God, we pray that you would use your word this morning to help us be more and more like your son. And we thank you that we can look to you and know that you're a God who hears our prayers and you are far more willing to bless than we are even willing to ask. So God, bless us this morning, we pray, as we look at your word together. In Jesus' name, amen. Please be seated. Well just uh, over two weeks ago, as you all know, Hamas launched a vicious attack against Israel. It was well planned, started out with rockets firing, thousands of rockets firing, and then simultaneously there were attacks across the nation as about a thousand men, women, and children were killed, and more were taken captive, taken hostage, hundreds actually. The death toll now stands at around 1,500 people in Israel of the Israelis, and many Israelis are still being held captive. And we also know that Israel's response has been brutal as well, that thousands of Palestinians in Gaza have now been killed as war kind of tears through that land. And then hundreds of Palestinian children have been killed in a a hospital bombing, and both sides are blaming each other for that tragedy. It is a, a horrible reality that we're watching unfold before us in our day. And it's very true that the war seems to be spiraling somewhat out of control. And so you have nations all around that part of the world that seem very eager to get into the fight, nations like Jordan and Lebanon and Iran and Turkey. And of course, we know that the United States has sent over Navy ships to act as something of of a barrier for the people of Israel. And we all know that there are international allies on all sides. And it's very possible that this conflagration could just burst forth into an actual war even a world war. And we all know how terrible that could be. And it's quite true as we look at events in our world that we live in tumultuous times. So Seaford Baptist Church, in light of all of that, in light of all of kind of the conflict that we are watching, in light of the turmoil, how are you doing? How are you doing this morning as you look at these events? How's your heart doing this morning. For many of us, I know we could say that as we look at those events, it is a, it's, a, it's a, a jarring thing. Now, I know something about you. I know that you're a church that believes in the absolute sovereignty of God. You know that God is not small. Uh, he's not some parochial deity over just some little part of the world. He is king over all the universe. You know that. You proclaim that truth. I bless God for that. I know that you know that God is sovereign over all that he has made, down to kind of the constituent parts of the smallest atom, and that each and every moment he is guiding all of history, I know that you know that a Christian is a person who never has to be afraid. And yet, it's very possible for us, even though we believe those truths, to in the moment be focusing our minds and our hearts uh, on such such a trouble, such a turmoil, that actually instead of trusting in God, instead we find ourselves shaken, concerned, and anxious. We can be like Peter who began to sink when he took his eyes off of Jesus and he's looking at the wind and he's looking at the waves and all of a sudden he finds out that he's sinking. It's possible for our hearts to do something precisely like that. And perhaps if you were to be honest, you would have to say that that's where you are this morning. Perhaps as you look across the international scene or perhaps as you look at, at struggles in your own life, you'd have to admit that this morning you feel like your heart is sinking. Well, if that's you this morning, then we have the privilege of doing precisely what we always need to do. As we look at Psalm 46, we, we get to look at the greatness of our God. And as we look at the greatness of our God, we will have what we need to kind of put all of our troubles in their proper proportion, their proper perspective, and we will be able to rest in the greatness and the majesty and the sovereignty of God. And that is precisely what we need to do. You look at that first verse of Psalm 46, it says it all. God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. This morning we're looking at Psalm 46 because this is a psalm that points us to the absolute sovereignty and majesty and ultimate victory of God. This is a wonderful place for us to park our hearts as we think about all that we're facing internationally and all that we're facing in our own lives. It's a good psalm for days like the ones we're living through. The superscript, or kind of the title above the psalm, gives us some information about it. It tells us that this is a a psalm that was written by the sons of Korah. Those were the chief musicians who led the people of Israel in worship to God. It also tells us that this psalm is according to the Alamoth. We're not entirely sure what that means. It's possible that that was the tune to which the psalm was to be sung by the people of Israel. The superscript it itself, it doesn't give us the historical background, you know, kind of what was happening when the psalmist penned these words. It doesn't give us that detail, but many commentators believe that, that when this psalm was written, it was written in response to a great victory that the Lord had worked for the people of Israel. They, they pinned this psalm in Israel's history to the defeat of the Assyrian king Sennacherim that occurred in 701 B.C., because that defeat showed forth the majesty of God in such a striking way. So in 701 BC, Sennacherib, he was the king of Assyria. This is is kind of the global superpower of the time. He sets his eyes on Judah. He's going to come and he's going to conquer Judah. And he first begins with the second greatest city in Judah, which is Lachish. And he surrounds that city and he besieges that city and he ultimately takes that city. And then he moves on from there to Jerusalem and he sets a siege around Jerusalem. And from every human's perspective, from human perspective, there's no way that Jerusalem is going to be able to withstand this siege. Seems like defeat is absolutely inevitable. But, but there was a godly king in Israel. His name was Hezekiah. He found himself in a situation that seemed hopeless. But because of the encouragement of the aged prophet Isaiah, Hezekiah did not surrender. He did not capitulate to the king of Assyria. Instead, he held firm and Jerusalem stood fast. Why? Why? because God is a warrior. And in one night, he sent one angel, and that one angel slew 185,000 of the Assyrian army. And when the king of Assyria awoke Sennacherib that morning, thinking that he is still glorious and powerful, he realized that he no longer had strength to wage war against the city of Jerusalem. And so he retreated in shame. And this psalm, many believe, and I believe, was written as a result of that great victory. It was a song of praise to God, who himself is the victor of his people. Now, Martin Luther, if you know uh, Martin Luther, he loved Psalm 46. Uh, This was a particularly important psalm for him, because it gave him great courage, as he faced really what seemed to be overwhelming odds in his life. This is what he said about the psalm. He said, we sing this psalm to the praise of God, because God is with us, and powerfully and miraculously, Preserves and defends his church and his word against all fantastical spirits, against the gates of hell, against the implacable hatred of the devil, and against all the assaults of the world and the flesh and sin. Luther knew what it was to be confronted by overwhelming odds. He had the Holy Roman Emperor against him, and he had the Roman Catholic Pope against him, and it seemed like he would be killed very, very soon. And yet, he knew from this psalm that God is a help and a refuge for his people. It reminded Luther of God's unchanging character and his greatness. No matter how strong his enemies were, he knew, listen, this is important, that God is stronger still. And this psalm reminds us of that same truth, that our God is stronger still. This morning we're going to see three truths, really, as we look at this psalm together. Three truths from Psalm 46, if you're taking notes. First, we're going to see that God is the support of his people. God is the support of his people. We'll see that in verses 1 to 3. Second, we're going to see that God is a warrior for his people, that God is a warrior for his people. We'll see that in verses four to seven. And third, we're going to see that God is the victor over his enemies. God is the victor over his enemies. We'll see that as we look at verses eight and 11. Let's look at that first truth together this morning. God is the support of his people. Take your copy of God's word and look again at verses one to three with me. It says, God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear, though the earth give way, though the mountains be moved into the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and foam, though the mountains tremble at its swelling, Salah. Look at verse one again. God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. There's three descriptions of God there, three aspects of the reality that our God is the support of his people, their helper, the one who strengthens them, enables them to stand. And the first aspect you see there is that God is the refuge of his people. Now, God is described as a refuge really throughout the Old Testament, and there was a, an image that would have come into the minds of the people as they would have thought about a city that was surrounded by strong walls, a place of security, a place where they could run and flee, and they would be safe from their enemies. And yet, when you think about it, in ancient times, like Lachish, city after city that had strong walls, well, those walls came down, and the people were defeated, and they faced, they faced defeat. Even the strongest man-made fortress cannot keep us safe. But, But when you say that God is the refuge of his people, you are talking about an impenetrable fortress. You're talking about a defense for God's people that can never be overcome. God, listen, is the one we can run to and we will be secure. Now, King David... Earlier, a few hundred years before the psalm probably was written, he learned this truth and the trials he faced as well. You remember, King David was hunted as a young man by King Saul who was trying to take his life. Later on, he was surrounded by these uh, nations around Israel that were constantly trying to conquer the people of Israel. And so his life was a life of war, but over the course of his life, he learned this truth that God is the refuge of his people. Listen to what he says near the end of his life after God had delivered him from all the hands of his enemies. 2 Samuel chapter 22 verses 31 to 34. David gave this testimony. He said, this God, his way is perfect. The word of the Lord proves true. He is a shield for all those who take refuge in him. For who is God but the Lord? And who is a rock except our God? This God is my strong refuge and has made my way blameless He has made my feet like the feet of a deer and set me secure on the heights. Now, friends, from this, we need to see that that as Christians, we have no refuge in this world. There is no ultimate refuge in the things of this world and the things of this life that we can run to and be safe. But we try, don't we? People try to find refuge in money. They think if my bank account can be just a little higher, if my 401k can just advance a little more. If I can have enough insurance, surely I'm going to be secure. But then again and again, we see it's not true. If you're old enough to remember the dot-com burst in 2001 or the Great Recession of 2008, well, those are just the latest witnesses to the fact that that money is here one moment and then it's gone the next. There's no refuge in money. People try to find security in a successful career. They work really, really hard trying to make themselves invaluable to the company. They think, if I can just get to this next level, surely I'm going to have security here. But then another company buys their company, and their job is redundant, and it's downsized. And all the security they thought they would find in that position, well, it's lost. Some seek security and rest in relationships. Uh, Perhaps it's a spouse, children, friends, whatever it is. We're looking for something lasting, something that will give us safety and security. A friend's death comes or brokenness in relationship occurs. Relationships are not a, an ultimate refuge. They're a blessing, but they're not an ultimate refuge for us. You see, we can find lasting safety and refuge in nothing in this world. If we're going to find it, we're going to have to find it in God. And here's the good news. Our God is the support of his people. He's a refuge for us. There's a second aspect of the fact that our God is a support of his people. He is the strength of his people. God is a refuge and strength. He's not only the one we go to for comfort and safety, he's the one we go to for power. So if we're seeking to live the Christian life uh, in our own power, what happens is that we fall on our face very, very quickly. Jesus says, apart from me, you can do absolutely nothing. And if you've walked with the Lord for any period of time, you know that that's true. The only way we're going to accomplish anything for God that is of lasting, eternal significance is if God himself gives us strength to do that and praise God that he is at work in us both to will and to work for his good pleasure. There's a third aspect in the fact that God is the support of his people. God is a very present help in trouble. And I love this. Our God is not aloof from us. He's not up in heaven, just kind of a detached way looking down upon us, seeing how we're getting along, not really concerned if we're struggling, but just kind of watching, you know, just kind of there. No, through the trial, our God actually supports us and strengthens us, and he is indeed present with us. I love what Charles Spurgeon said about this. He said, God is the believer's help, truly, effectually, constantly. He is present or near them, close at their side and ready to help them he is more present than friend or relative can be, yea, more nearly present than even the trouble itself. And I love that because sometimes the, the troubles feel like they're pressing in, like they're breathing down our necks. And Spurgeon's saying, no, no, you, you have to understand, God is nearer to you than that. God is not far from you. Brothers, sister, if you're struggling this morning, God is present with you if you are in Christ. Our God is closer than even our troubles. Now, Now, the fact that God is a present help for his people, it does something. It cuts the legs out under the worry in our lives. Worry paints a a bleak picture, doesn't it? If you find yourself, you're thinking and you're anxious and you're worried, most of the time you're thinking about the future. And if you really stop to think about what you're thinking about, you're thinking about a future where God has abandoned you and left you to your own resources. And so it seems bleak and gray, and you wonder, how am I going to survive? How am I going to do this? What's happened? We forget God, and we need to remember, God is a present help for his people. That future, brother or sister, if you're in Christ this morning, that future will never happen. God will never abandon you. He will never be far from you. You're never going to have to figure out how to do things on your own. No, he is close to you. So if we would have peace in this life, if we would endure the trials of this life, if we would even rejoice in the midst of adversity, the only way to do that is to know God. That's what we're saying. Do you notice how the psalmist is pointing the people of Israel towards God, towards his character, towards his attributes? Oh, friends, why should we study theology for this reason? Because it's important for the Christian life. Let me give you just one example. If the thought of God in your mind is small, your problems are going to seem big. It's going to seem like they're bigger than God, they're certainly bigger than you, and you're going to be afraid. But if you know God, if you know God as he's presented in Psalm 46... If you know that he's a refuge and help for his people and he's present with you, well then those problems are going to kind of take on their proper size, which is small enough. And you're going to see that ultimately what God is doing in those problems is he's giving you light momentary afflictions that are producing for you an eternal weight of glory and that all the problems are sifted through his fingers because he's a loving Heavenly Father, and he knows that we need to, we need to suffer at times in order to be refined into the image of Christ, and he is far more, far more concerned that we would be like Jesus than that we would be comfortable. Now, well, friends, we have to know God. We have to know his greatness and his goodness so that as we pass through that trial, we're not afraid, we're not shaken, but instead we trust the goodness of our Heavenly Father And as we do that, well, we will be blessed. We see the effects of good theology, of rightly knowing God on the psalmist's soul. Look at verses 2 and 3. Look at the impact that this has on the psalmist. He says, therefore, right, in light of what I've just said, therefore, we will not fear though the earth gives way, though the mountains be moved into the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and foam, that the mountains tremble at its swelling, salah. Do you notice it's because of what has just been revealed about God in verse 1 that the psalmist now says what he says in verse 2. He says, therefore we will not fear. And then he begins to describe the ultimate in fear-inducing circumstances. The floor below you, it just opens up. Waters come up. It seems like you're going to be drowned. Mountains around you are tumbling into the sea. All of the world, it seems like it's just collapsing. Our mind's eye goes back to Noah and to the flood. Uh, And the people there who had rejected God, they're running higher and higher, looking for some place of safety as the water goes higher and higher until ultimately there's no place of safety left. And they realize they're going to die. It seems merciless. It seems hopeless. It's a terrifying scene. But do you notice in verse 2 that terror is not the response of the psalmist? What does he say in verse 2? Therefore, we will not fear. Why not? Why not? because God is the refuge of his people, and because God is the strength of his people, and because God is a present help with his people in their presence. God is the support of his people. The psalmist: God was bigger than his trials, even the trial of death. Now, In Hezekiah's day, the the great trial was what? It was the king of Assyria coming with his vast army and surrounding the city and cutting it off so that it seemed like it was certainly going to fall and they were going to be killed. But notice God delivered his people. So brother, sister, let me ask you, what do you fear this morning? It's a safe place for us all to admit that we have fears. What is it that you fear this morning? What is it that keeps you up at night? What is it that you're wrestling with this morning? Perhaps for some of us, our fears have to do with the situation in the Middle East. It does really seem to be a powder keg, doesn't it? Seems like at any moment something could occur and we would be launched into a a worldwide war. It seems very possible. And perhaps you spent this week, as you've looked at the news and you've thought about what it would be like if the United States was dragged into this conflict, perhaps you've even embraced a doomsday perspective on this as if there's no hope already. Friend, listen, brother, sister of Seaford Baptist, to embrace a doomsday perspective on any scenario in this life, it's wrong. It's living below your privileges as a child of God. Why? Because you serve a God who will never be defeated. You serve a God who reigns over all. And praise God for that. In Hezekiah's day, the people of Jerusalem were terrified at the thought of the coming conflict with Sennacherib's army. But in one night, God sends one angel, and that one angel wipes out 185,000 of the men of Sennacherib's army. If God can send just one angel and do that, should we think that God is up in heaven somewhere worried and anxious about this potential conflict in Israel? Friends, he's on the throne. He's not anxious. He's working out his purposes. Now, now we've been talking about the conflict in Israel because that's front and center in many of our lives, right? We're looking at this. It's all over the headlines. We don't exactly know where it's going. But we also know this. We know that there are many trials that we are facing in this life that can make us feel like the earth is giving way. So the death of a spouse can completely turn your life upside down. To be diagnosed with a serious illness shakes us to the core. Uh, Being suddenly unemployed makes us feel like there's no security. The rebellion of a beloved child can stagger us. There are many trials that we can face in this life, and perhaps you're facing such a trial this morning that can make us feel like the earth is giving way underneath us. But do you notice how Psalm 46 speaks to all of those trials? Do you notice how it points us to God who is our present help in the midst of all of the trials that we may experience? So even in dark times, we do not have to fear. Why? Because God is our refuge and strength. God is the support of his people. There's a second truth I want us to see this morning. God is a warrior for his people. Look at verses 4 to 7. There is a river, the psalmist continues, whose streams make glad the city of God, the holy habitation of the Most High, God is in the midst of her. She shall not be moved. God will help her when morning dawns. The nations rage. The kingdoms totter. He utters his voice. The earth melts. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. Salam. You know, the imagery of the river there in verse 4 is beautiful, isn't it? It's also somewhat enigmatic. What does that river refer to? What, what is it talking about? This river whose streams make glad the city of God. When the Jews heard those words for the first time, they probably would have thought of the stream of Siloam. You see, before Sennacherib came with his army, uh, Hezekiah had caused the people to make it so that that stream would enter through the city so that the city would always have water. Why is that important? Because the greatest danger to any city in a time of siege is that they would run out of water and they'd have to surrender. But if there's water in the city, well, then the city is safe and the people are glad Spurgeon believed this river in verse 4 refers to the grace of God, and I agree with him. That's the picture we're seeing. We're seeing God as this fountain of grace who continually sustains his people and makes their hearts glad so that they can endure any adversity that God permits in their lives. And notice in verses 4 and 5, second part of verse 4 to verse 5, the city makes glad the city of God, the holy habitation of the Most High. You know, the city of God there, it refers most especially to the city of Jerusalem in the time of the psalmist. This is where God had chosen to cause his presence to be in a particular way there in the temple. He filled his glory, the, the temple was filled with his glory. And it was in Jerusalem that God dwelt in the midst of his people in a special way in the Old Testament. And we see that very clearly in verse 5. It says, God is in the midst of her, she shall not be moved. But but do you know that these words tell us more than just that God dwelt in the midst of his people in the Old Testament? It tells us now that God dwells in the midst of his people, the church. Oh, Sefer Baptist, what good news for you this morning. God himself dwells in the midst of you. God himself loves you and knows you and is close to you. And so your hearts can be glad. God always dwells with his people. God was the the source of protection for the Jews in the time of Hezekiah, and God is the source of protection for his people for all times. So, against such a God, what can the enemies of God do? Well, they can do nothing. Look at verses 6 and 7. The nations rage, the kingdoms totter. He utters his voice, the earth melts. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress, Salah. So look at it in verse 4. God is pictured as a river that supplies his people with grace. In verse 5, we're reminded that God dwells in the midst of his people. But then in verses 6 and 7, we see that God is a warrior fighting for his people. Look at the first part of verse 6. Notice what the nations are doing. What are they doing? They're raging. They're raging against the people of God. Ultimately, they're raging against God. Think of Sennacherib of Assyria. What's he doing? He's raging against God and the people of God as he brings his army against them. But notice, what does God do? He just utters a word. And the army is destroyed. It totters and it falls. Friends, this is the best fallen man can do against God. Sinful man can rage against God. Sinful man can hate God. Sinful man can revile God with his words. Sinful man tries to dethrone God, but it's pointless. He can never win. It's futile. God utters his voice, the earth melts. Period. Man does his best to overthrow God. Man can do nothing against God. In a moment, God wins the victory. In our day, think about it. The thought of God is being erased from much of public discourse. It's no longer polite to speak about God or bring God's morality into the discussion in the public sphere. Christian campus ministries are feeling the pinch of that on secular campuses. I know that's certainly true of William & Mary in Williamsburg where I pastor. Uh, court case after court case is being brought against any form of public expression of belief in God. That can be intimidating for us, can't it? Seeing the opposition of the world against God in his truth, but, but verses 4 to 7 should give us great comfort. Why? Because brothers and sisters, our God is a warrior for his people. Our God fights for his people. That's what the title Lord of hosts there in verse 7 it refers to. The Lord of hosts is the one who leads the armies of heaven into battle. He's a mighty conqueror. He's a warrior. Now let me give you one observation that flows from this. Because once again, this is practical. Brothers or sisters, we can know perfect peace in the midst of adversity. I know some of you are facing adversity this morning. Some of you are facing serious adversity this morning. But you can have peace this morning. Why? Because if you belong to Jesus, God is a warrior who fights for you. God is a warrior who cares about you. He's the Lord of hosts. And that gives us peace. I want us to see one picture of this from the Old Testament. I want you to think about the prophet Elisha. Uh, Elisha does mighty miracles. And Elisha also tells the king of Israel about all that the king of Syria was planning to do. And and in the course of time, the king of Syria gets tired of the people of Israel always being delivered because Elisha is telling the king of Israel precisely what he's planning to do. And so the king of Syria sends his army to kill Elisha and he actually surrounds the city of Dothan where Elisha is. And when they wake up in the morning, Elisha, his servant, is, is utterly terrified. Why? Because he looks around him and he sees this vast army of the nation of Syria but Elisha was calm. Why could Elisha be calm? Elisha was calm because he saw things as they really were. He saw circumstances very differently than the servant saw them. Listen to what he said in 2 Kings chapter 6 verses 16 to 17. He said, do not be afraid for those who are with us are more than those who are with them. Then Elisha prayed and said, "O oh Lord please open his eyes that he may see So the Lord opened the eyes of the young man and he saw and behold the mountain was full of horses and chariots of fire all around Elisha. Why wasn't Elisha afraid? Elisha wasn't afraid because even though he was surrounded by the host of Syria, he knew that God was with him. He knew that greater was the one who was with him than the one who was against him. Seaford Baptist in our day, we can slowly feel like we're being surrounded by enemies that are seeking to do us harm. We sense the religious freedom that we've enjoyed for so long, which is a great blessing. We, We sense that that's being constricted in some ways. We sense that the Judeo Christian kind of worldview and ethic that many of us grew up with, we see that that's slowly being erased. We see evil, evil that was unimaginable 20 years ago, is now being publicly celebrated in the streets, and good is being vilified. And in the midst of these shifting circumstances though, we can know peace and we don't have to be afraid. Why? For the same reason. Because those who are with us are more than those who are with the world. Because God is a warrior who fights for his people. And just as Elisha was surrounded by flaming chariots in the army of God, so you brother or sister, just imagine what this means. Your life is protected by the omnipotent God who fights for you. Seaford Baptist Church, as the gospel goes forth from this church, as this is a true church preaching a true gospel, God is not indifferent towards you. He is fighting for you. Praise God. God is a warrior for his people. A third truth. This morning. God is the victor over his enemies. Look at verses 8 to 11. Come behold the works of the Lord, how he has brought desolations on the earth. He makes war cease to the ends of the earth. He breaks the bow and shatters the spear. He burns the chariots with fire. Be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. Verses 8 and 9 invite us to view the complete and absolute victory of God. If Psalm 46 was written in response to the defeat of Sennacherib and his army, then perhaps verse 8 refers to the aftermath of that one-sided battle because when Sennacherib left with those who remained, the people of Israel came out, and behold, all of the valley there was filled with the body of 185,000 soldiers. Coming out of Jerusalem, they would have seen the absolute victory of God over his enemies. And that, friends, is a picture of the final victory that Christ will win over all of his enemies. So that the issue of who wins, it's not even in dispute. Jesus wins. And our role is to behold that victory. Notice also in verse 9 that this is a picture of peace. Did you notice that in verse 9? God makes wars to cease in the ends of the earth. How? He destroys the implements of warfare. The bow and the spear and the chariots. God's final victory over his enemies will bring peace to this troubled world. God will reign. And when he reigns, we will know true and lasting peace. Why? Because God will destroy his enemies and they will be powerless to make war any more. The day is coming, brothers or sisters, when Jesus is going to reign from shore to shore. And the knowledge of God will fill the earth as the waters fill the seas. Isaiah chapter 2, verse 4. God shall judge between nations and shall decide disputes for many people. And they shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war anymore. What then is the appropriate response to the reality that God is going to win? Verse 10. Verse 10 is the great application of this psalm. Be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nation. I will be exalted in the earth. Verse 10, most especially, while it comforts the hearts of God's people, Most especially, it is an appeal to the enemies of God to put down their weapons and to understand that God will be God, that God will win. It's a command of them to surrender. It's a declaration of God's victory. Everyone who is currently fighting against God or despising God or reviling God or living as if God doesn't exist or that it doesn't really matter if he exists or not. All of those should put down their weapons against God because God will win. God will be victorious. God is speaking to those who are actively opposing and rejecting him and he's telling them that they will not win so they must put down their weapons and acknowledge that God alone has the right to rule in the universe and listen, in their hearts and friend, in your heart he alone has the right to rule in our hearts. Friend, if you're with us this morning, you're not a follower of Jesus, we want you to consider these words in a special way. They're directed towards you. God is speaking to you this morning, and he's telling you that he will win the victory. Uh, He's telling you that history is going somewhere, Uh, that it's linear, that it has a conclusion, and it's it's going to end with the utter and complete victory of God. He will be king of all. And so now for you because we're heading towards this final victory of God now this is a summons for you to lay down your weapons against God and instead turn from your sins and trust in Jesus and enter into the grace of God. Friends, you do not have to wear a god is evil t-shirt to be an enemy of God. You just have to live for yourself. You just have to live as if you're the most important person in the universe. You just have to go about your life trying to make yourself as happy as possible for as long as possible until you become too old to enjoy living anymore, and then you die. And friend, that is what warfare against God looks like. It looks like saying, I will be the king of my life, thank you, not you. And Psalm 46, verse 10 is in a very solemn way pointing to you this morning, and he's saying, friend, you will not win. So turn from your rebellion, and now hear the good news, because this brings us to the gospel this morning. Here's the good news. Turn from your rebellion, and realize, perhaps for the first time this morning, that God is a good and gracious King, who welcomes His enemies into a restored relationship with Him, who indeed has done all that is necessary for you this morning, friend, to be saved. He sent His Son, the Lord Jesus, And what did Jesus do? Jesus entered into this broken world on purpose. Why? Because you and I were created by God to know him and love him and walk with him and serve him. But our first parents, Adam and Eve, they turned against God in the Garden of Eden and said, we will determine for ourselves what is good and bad. We will live the way we want to live and we send in them. And because we've all come from them, we've all inherited that same sinful nature, which at its heart is this profound turning in on ourselves so that we make our lives about us and what we can achieve and how happy we can be and how we can pursue our own interests. And that's why you don't have to teach children to lie because they will lie to protect their own self-interest. And you don't have to teach them to hit because they will fight for their own self-interest. And you know what? When we grow up, not much changes. That is the nature of sin, friends. It is enmity against God. And left to ourselves, the message of the Bible is this. None of us would be able to stand in, a holy, in the presence of a holy God and be admitted, be permitted to dwell in his presence because God is holy and we're not. But friends, listen to the good news this morning. This glorious sovereign victor, this king, is even now putting before you the offer of salvation. He's appealing to you even now, this morning, he's saying, turn from your sin, turn from living for yourself, instead, put your trust in Jesus. And what has Jesus done? Friend, Jesus has done all that's necessary for you to be saved. Jesus came into this world. The eternal Son of God became a man. He lived a perfect life. He always obeyed the will of his heavenly Father. He always loved others as he loved himself. He always served others. He always laid down his life for others. And the greatest display of that was the cross. Where on the cross, he offered himself as a sacrifice for sinners so that all of our sin could be laid on Him. So it could be punished in Him because we're not strong enough to bear it. And He died under the weight of our sin. And then He rose from the dead because He conquered sin and death and hell. And this morning the offer is for you. Turn from your sins and put your trust in this glorious Savior and you will be saved. You will have eternal life. Don't rage war against God. Repent. Surrender. Put your hope in this good and glorious King and find eternal life in Him. If you do that, this glorious King will welcome you even now into His presence. Trust in Him this morning and be saved. Oh, friend, do not think that Christianity is just, uh, just about a bunch of religious people who gather together because they like to read the Bible and pray. Christianity is a person. His name is Jesus. He offers you eternal life this morning if you will turn from your sins and trust in him. He's the king. Worship him and be saved this morning. Seaford Baptist Church, what does this say to you? What does it say to you this morning? Oh, friends, what does it say? It says so much. It says that that we must not live for ourselves any more. It says this, it says that we must not live a life that's characterized by fear anymore. Ah, So think about this conflict again in Israel. We're talking about it because it's in the headlines, right? But we don't have to be afraid anymore. Why? Because when Jesus rose from the dead, he had won the great and final victory. And now all of history is simply just that victory being played out in space and time as in generation after generation after generation, King Jesus is drawing more people into his ever-growing kingdom. And when the time comes, he will return and put down all of his foes and he will make all things new. And if you are in Christ this morning, you have a part in that victory. Jesus' victory is is your victory. Well, friends, we don't have to live lives marked by fear anymore. We can trust in our victorious king. So let's kill the fear in our lives and glorify God by trusting him. Let's grow in Christ-likeness and fight against the sin that kind of nips at our heels and abide in Christ. Let's make disciples of Jesus Christ. That's what we've been called to do, to help one another become more like Jesus and to help people who do not know Jesus come to know Jesus Well, friends, the nations are raging. War has been unleashed. No one knows what's going to happen next except the Lord himself. So how are you doing? If you're in Christ this morning, you're doing amazingly well. Jesus has already won the victory, and you're victorious in him. And so you can have great peace, and you can live for him. And as we do that, even in this coming week, let's remember, as it says in verse 11, the Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. Let's pray. Lord God, we praise you for this display of your glory and your majesty and your sovereignty and your power and your grace towards sinners. What hope we have this morning, knowing that you do all things well and that you're working out your purposes in history. What hope we can have as we look to you and we see you exalted. I pray, Lord, for Seaford Baptist Church. I ask that this church would be strengthened and blessed and encouraged by the greatness of their God. I pray, Lord God, that you would bless the gospel ministry of this church. I pray as we enter into this coming week, Lord, that we would live lives that are marked by a a holy boldness and confidence in you. And I pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.